This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. Let's get into this week's top headlines. Russia's invasion of Ukraine began early yesterday morning with attacks on several major cities, including the capital, Kiev. We'll hear New Hampshire Senator Gene Shaheen's reaction to what's happening in Eastern Europe. Dozens of refugees from Afghanistan have resettled in the state over the past few months. What's it been like for them to rebuild life here in New Hampshire? And finally, a quick roundup of the latest news on the environment, energy, and climate beats. Joining us now to talk about all of this and all of these stories and much more are NHPR's Maura Hoplamazian and New Hampshire Bulletin's uh, Amanda Gokey. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Good to have you both here. Uh, New Hampshire Senator Jean Shaheen um, serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Let's start with what's going on in Ukraine. She was in Poland just a few days ago when she met with U.S. allies and NATO partners. Mara, what have we heard from Shaheen about the Russian invasion in Ukraine? Um, in an interview on NHPR with Peter Biello last night, we heard Senator Shaheen talk about how there are more opportunities to ramp up additional sanctions on Russia and Vladimir Putin. She said when she was in Poland, she learned the country has already accepted about a million Ukrainian refugees and has a welcome center set up on the border to accept Americans who are fleeing Ukraine. Here's a clip from that interview. Well, we know there's going to be some economic impact from what's happening as we put in place severe sanctions, not just on the United States, but on our European allies. But we've got to remember that any action like this that allows Putin or any dictator to go unchallenged when they try to move in and take over a sovereign country can't be allowed. And, of course, we'll continue following what's been happening in Ukraine right here on NHPR and NPR. Uh, Amanda, I want to ask you, you've been following the resettlement of dozens of Afghan refugees here in New Hampshire over the last few months. I know you talked this week with some of the folks from the two resettlement agencies that have been receiving new arrivals. What have they been saying about the process of helping people get settled here? I spoke with State Representative Sophia Wazir, who herself had immigrated to New Hampshire as a refugee fleeing the Taliban about 15 years ago. She said that starting a new life over from scratch takes time. New arrivals face significant language and cultural changes when they get here. The resettlement agencies help get their basic needs taken care of first, like access to food, housing, employment, and trainings. And I know the housing market in New Hampshire is really tough right now. We've been hearing lots of reporting on that. We have a chronic shortage of workforce and affordable housing in particular. How has it been for these agencies trying to find places to live for for new arrivals? Both of the resettlement agencies told me that housing has been a major challenge. Some refugees have been housed in hotels around Concord and Manchester as the agencies try to secure more permanent housing. Cost is another big issue. Jeff Kinney, who works for Accentria, said refugees only receive around $1,225 from the federal government to cover expenses like housing for the first 90 days. But the agency is seeing apartments in Manchester going for around $1,800 a month. Yeah. What about other basic needs like employment and, and transportation? Are, are there ways that you know, local communities can, can better support these Afghan refugees? With the staffing shortage that the state is experiencing, there are a lot of industries looking to hire new arrivals, but it can take years for refugees to be able to afford a car of their own and public transportation can be spotty. Henry Harris, a caseworker at the International Institute of New England, said companies need to be flexible and creative, like offering a van to bring employees to and from work. 
Neighborhood support teams are one support system, and they're made up of local volunteers that have donated time and, and money providing a support system for things like getting a ride to the doctor's office. Yeah. This is Morning Edition from NHPR. We're recapping this week's news with New Hampshire Bulletin's Amanda Koki and NHPR's Mara Hoplamazian. What questions do you have for what's been going on in the state? You can always email us and shape our reporting at nhpr.org. Let's move on to the latest news in the environment, energy, and climate. Governor Sununu signing a bill yesterday designed to save the state's energy efficiency programs, NH Saves. The state's Public Utilities Commission voted in November to cut the rates that fund those programs. But, Mara, can, can you remind us of the, the initial reaction from folks when the, when the PUC made that deci- decision last fall? Sure, Rick. So Amanda and I have been covering this story for a while. When the PUC issued their order in November, it came as a surprise to a lot of people. Um, The commission rejected this three-year energy efficiency plan that would have expanded energy efficiency programs in the state. And that plan was pretty widely supported. You know, the state's utilities, the consumer advocate, some environmental groups, some community service organizations all signed on in this settlement agreement and agreed it was going to decrease energy use and save people money. But the commission didn't just reject it. They went even further. Um, Energy efficiency in New Hampshire is funded in part by rates on electric and gas utility ratepayers' bills. That's, you know, generally a few dollars a month for the average customer. And the PUC cut those rates that fund those programs, so essentially cut the budgets for energy efficiency. And that caused um, a lot of confusion and disruption. So utility companies had to make new plans. Some energy efficiency contractors said they worried they'd have to lay off a lot of their workforce. Um, Some community action agencies I talked with in the fall who helped facilitate programs programs that help lower income folks weatherize and insulate their homes said the order put projects on hold. So it had a big impact. Um, And there were some legal challenges, too, in Superior Court, even at the New Hampshire Supreme Court. Um, Yeah. So so it made a a big splash. It did. Yeah. Uh, And I know on your beat, you've been watching this for a long time and you were at the signing uh, for the energy efficiency bill yesterday with the governor. What do lawmakers hope that, that this bill specifically will accomplish? Yeah, I I was. There was a a lot of smiles in that room. So House Bill 549 puts the rates that fund energy efficiency into state law. It sets those rates at their 2020 levels, which are as high as they've ever been, with a modest yearly increase that's also set into state law. It's important to note that the PUC suspended parts of their November order and restored funding to its 2020 levels um, in an order earlier this month as part of a Supreme Court settlement with the Office of the Consumer Advocate. The consumer advocate told me that was an interim step, but you know those those rates were restored earlier in the month. But HB 549 also restores the structures of energy efficiency programs to what they looked like on January 1st, 2021, before the PUC issued their order. So Kelly Buchanan from Clean Energy New Hampshire told me it was like an emergency vehicle. She said it restores things to the status quo. It future-proofs energy efficiency programs. It allows things to get back to normal, back to the basics. Um, But Supreme Court challenges address other parts of the PUC's order, like what kind of notice they need to give parties um, in a docket when they're going to change something broader than people anticipated, like changing the framework for energy efficiency in the state. Um, So I'll be looking out for what the future of those challenges is going to look like, too. Okay, and I'm sure you'll be letting us know. Amanda, I know you've been following another decision from the PUC that's, that's received pushback from environmental groups. The commission essentially did away with a plan to require stakeholder input on how the state would handle modernizing the energy grid. What happened there? So the PUC first started looking at this issue back in 2015 upon direction from the the legislature to do so. So it's been going on for about seven years now. And they did reach a decision in May of 2020 to create the stakeholder group that you mentioned. Um, 
that would have given some control over updating the grid to those other than the utilities. Um, but Eversource did push back on that and said that this would really disrupt the way that they do business. And so what we saw in this most recent decision is the PUC essentially removing all of the teeth from, from its its prior decision. Um, so there's no, there's no actual requirement and they did um, open up another docket to continue looking at this issue. So there was some disappointment that nothing um, more concrete came out of, of this decision. Yeah, and there's always talk about how old the state's energy grid is and and you know the need needing for the needs for updating, right? Yeah. So this system responsible for getting electricity to homes and businesses in the States is about a century old. And it was designed at a time when power was generated in one place and then pushed outward and distributed. Um, but now we're seeing more people are generating their own power. They're using things like rooftop solar and other renewable sources of energy. So it's becoming more of a two-way street where people are putting energy onto the grid in addition to receiving it. Um, there's also a shift to electric cars. And so people are going to have pretty significant battery storage at home. Um, and energy experts say the grid does need to change to allow for more clean energy and to make it more flexible, resilient, and participatory. And of course, New Hampshire is not alone in those efforts. We're hearing much more about that as uh, as we go on. I want to turn our attention now to a, a new report from federal climate scientists um, that give the most concrete projections, they say, ever published for sea level rise here in the U.S. Maura, what, what did that have to say about what's predicted for New Hampshire's coastline? Well, one of the findings is that by 2050, coastal flooding that is severe enough to cause damage is expected to happen more than 10 times as often as it does today. That can be exacerbated by local factors like coastal erosion or what the infrastructure looks like. Um, but the report also shows that on the East Coast, sea levels are expected to rise 10 to 14 inches over the next three decades. And it says current and future fossil fuel emissions really matter. So failing to curb emissions could cause additional sea level rise. Yeah. what are, I mean, residents are seeing flooding on a regular basis now in some spots. Yeah. Well, I talked to Tom Bassett, who grew up visiting Hampton Beach and, and now owns a home there. Um, and he told me that a new report just kind of confirms what he's been experiencing. Flooding is a problem that's not going away. Um, flooding makes it hard for him to get out of his neighborhood in Hampton when the water is high. And he said he worries about older residents. You know, what if an emergency vehicle can't make it to their door because of flooding? I actually had the chance to visit Hampton in the fall and see what a 10-foot high tide looks like there. Um, and that can give you a pretty good picture for what everyday life could look like as sea levels continue to rise. And it was striking, you know, walking through neighborhood having water come up over the tops of my boots before I got halfway down a street. Yeah. And I mean, this obviously has implications not only for things like transportation, but obviously for future building projects and what could happen during king tides and major storms and so on. Yeah. Yeah. How is the state or local communities themselves along the coast planning for that future? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of efforts. Hampton officials told me that the town's taking steps to plan for rising sea levels. Um, they added a close coastal resilience section to their master plan. Um, they're figuring out what to do with existing buildings that might need to be elevated or moved. In Portsmouth, they started tra tracking sea level rise in 2012, and their environmental planner told me they'll continue to be tracking that and planning for those impacts. New Hampshire's Department of Environmental Services has a critical flood risk infrastructure grant program, which is currently accepting applications for flood resilience and stormwater management projects um, on the 
in in New Hampshire's coastal watershed communities. Um, those projects would get federal funding through the American Rescue Plan Act. And the climate scientists who released this recent report on sea level rise are planning to release a guide on applying the projections to local planning and adaptation decisions. So that'll be another resource. Okay, and I know you'll be watching that. And, and, and Mara, what else are you watching in your beat in the, in the near future, in the next week or so? Well, with town meetings coming up, I'm looking forward to reporting on any climate-related decisions that's, that are on the agenda for local communities in New Hampshire. So I'd love to hear from listeners. Uh, folks can email me, mhoplamazian at nhpr.org. Okay, give us some tips. And how about you, Amanda? What are you on the lookout for? Yeah, I have a story that'll be coming out early next week, um, looking at derelict and, and outdated dams around the state. Um, there's there's one particular controversy over a, removing a dam in, in Durham, also going to be decided at um, town meeting day um, coming up in March. So, and Mars also reported on that as well, just looking at really the thousands of, of outdated pieces of infrastructure that we have strewn around our landscape, how that's affecting the natural flow of, of rivers and the influx of federal money right now to uh, address these, these outdated dams. All right. We'll be watching for that. Thank you so much uh, to both Amanda Goki and Mara Hoplomazian. Thank you so much for both, uh, for both of you for joining the recap today. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. NHPR is Mara Hoplamazian and New Hampshire Bulletin's Amanda Goki. This is the New Hampshire News Recap. By the way, you can find more of their work at nhpr.org and newhampshirebulletin.com. And if you missed part of today's segment at all, you can always catch up wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the New Hampshire News Recap. I'm Rick Anley, and this is Morning Edition from NHPR.